Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 15. We'll be starting in verse 6, and this is where Peter actually preaches salvation through grace, and we're going to talk a little bit about the concept of circumcision, and we started into that last week. Mark had some really good explanations about the stance of the Israelites that had converted and thinking that salvation also required circumcision. Okay, well, we'd like to open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for allowing us to come together again to study your word, and we thank you for Mark and and, uh, his diligence in this study and making this uh, come alive with all this information that we can use and demonstrate to one and all. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good evening, Mark. Amen. Good evening. We've been examining the book of Acts from the standpoint of it being the systematic restoration of Israel or the systematic fulfillment of all promises that God had made to Israel through the Hebrew prophets And secondarily, we're seeing that it's the story of the fulfillment of the Great Commission, which uh, we're told in several places was completed before the apostles uh, uh, died or were killed, as most of them were. Whereas most Christians, I believe today, believe that the Great Commission has never been uh, fulfilled. So it doesn't mean that we don't have responsibilities in the areas of evangelism, but the Great Commission was expressly given to the disciples by Jesus, the 12 and the 120 who were there, uh, who stuck with him through his uh, trial and execution and resurrection. And in Acts 1, we saw how Jesus laid out this commission so we we have seen in chapters 10 through 15 of Acts how that this plan has just exploded amongst the Gentiles. And we have noted some excellent uh, recent historical research that has shown that throughout the Roman world, every synagogue was accompanied by larger and larger numbers of, of non-Judeans who were attracted to the God of Israel and who wanted to hear the Hebrew scriptures read every Sabbath. And this was a ready audience for those going out. Um, Antioch in Syria was the uh, center of these 
efforts, Josephus tells us that there were between 20 and 50,000 Judeans living in Antioch of Syria at this time. And huge numbers of Gentiles were participating in the synagogues of that uh, city. And that was that was where this problem came up that we've run into in Acts 15. As the numbers of Gentiles swelled, Paul has a message that these Gentiles are to be accepted in as equal citizens of Israel uh, into the synagogue communities. And this is causing extreme jealousy amongst the Judeans. In this case, we were told here in verse 5 that some of the Pharisees who had believed on Jesus had stood up and said that these Gentiles must be circumcised and charged to keep Moses' law. And we looked last time at how natural this would have been for a student of the law to think of, because after all, these promises that had been given over hundreds of years talked about the restoration of Israel in the days of the Messiah, the restoration of David's kingdom, which of course was called Israel. And no one could be a citizen of Israel without being circumcised if they were male and without following the law of Moses. And we looked at a couple of those restoration prophecies last time, Isaiah 2, where it said that the law would go out from Zion in the New Age, and in Isaiah 52, we were told that no uncircumcised will enter Zion in the New Age. So we can see that a that a student of the law and the prophets would have naturally thought that Yes, Gentiles are welcome now that Messiah has come, but of course they are to be grafted into Israel through the normal mechanism of following the law of Moses and through circumcision. There were a few writers in the first century who, uh, Judean writers that is, who understood the spiritual nature of Adam's death in the garden and the need for a spiritual resurrection in Israel. But the majority view, and as we'll see later in the book of Acts, uh, certainly amongst the Pharisees, the majority view was that Adam suffered physical death in the garden, and the cure for that under Messiah would be a physical bodily resurrection. They interpreted the promises of resurrection to be limited to the land, this land promise that we find back in Genesis 12, uh, repeated Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and so on. And so many, many writers in the first century uh, thought the resurrection would be limited to the land. And in fact, uh, some Orthodox Jews today believe the same thing. That's why grave plots in Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem, are some of the highest priced cemetery plots in the world because the Jews today, uh, many of them still believe that the resurrection is going to be limited to the physical land of Israel. Some of these writings are really bizarre. 
they had to solve the problem of these Judeans living abroad in the Roman world. How could they participate in the resurrection? And some wrote that there were underground tunnels connecting all places where Judeans lived back to the land of Palestine and that God would open these tunnels to let these dead Judean bodies roll back into Palestine in time to participate in the resurrection. So the land was physically thought to be important. Resurrection was thought to be a physical event. And only the circumcised were allowed to enter the land. So in, in, the, in the Pharisee mind of the first century, only the circumcised would be able to participate in the resurrection. As a side point, we noted last week that this is not a disputation on whether or not God was restoring Israel or fulfilling all of his promises. Everyone agrees to that. This is strictly a debate about the nature of this restoration. Was it physical or was it spiritual in nature? So, our futurist friends today, our Christian Zionist friends today, they do not recognize or they only pay lip service to the fact that God was restoring Israel in the first century uh, as the book of Acts records. Um, so we, we keep seeing proof after proof after proof in the book of Acts that Israel was being restored there in that century in that generation. It's not a still future event, which of course is significant for, uh, for us today. Circumcision is a very important issue to understand uh, God's time frame and the nature of God's promises. Um, we may have mentioned last week that it was uh, performed on the descendants of Abraham on, their, on the eighth day and this has great symbolism as we learn studying the Gospel of John because the eighth day is the first day uh, of the week, but it's after the first seven days. It's the, it's the day of the new creation, uh, the day of Christ's resurrection. And so circumcision on the eighth day had a significant symbolic meaning looking forward to the new birth uh, that would be achieved under Messiah. Of course, the prophets had talked about spiritual circumcision. Even Moses, back in Deuteronomy 10, uh, talked about uh, Israel needing to have a circumcised heart. But the physical act of circumcision for all of the years that Israel was a an earthly kingdom answered two questions. Number one, who were God's people? And number two, who could possess the land? And we already talked about why they thought that was so important. If we go back to Genesis 17, as God is relaying the need for circumcision to uh, Abraham, we find beginning in verse 10, um, well, no, that's where we get circumcision. But if we pick up at verse 13, it says, He that is born in your house, he that is bought with your money, has to be circumcised. My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. 
the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not cut off, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In verse 14. So, any uncircumcised male would be utterly cut off from the family of Abraham um, and later from the people of Israel, and they would be out of covenant with Yahweh. So, just further reasons we could see why so many of the Pharisees in the first century would have thought that it was necessary for a Gentile to be circumcised in order to be brought in as an equal citizen in the restored uh, Israel. Uh, To be cut off from the people usually meant death, but they also apparently had a ceremony where a man was taken outside the camp or town and had his clothes ripped and uh, they were kind of sent away like the old uh, TV show Branded uh, that I liked to watch when Mm -hmm. I was a kid. I think that only lasted a couple of seasons. (laughs) But uh, Mm -hmm. um, he was cut off and lived as an outcast uh, out in the wild west of the U.S. Uh, So uh, to be cut off from the people was a very serious matter. Someone that was cut off and not part of the people had no access to the temple. They had no inheritance in the land. They were dead in the eyes of God, spiritually dead, because they could not be reconciled through the law of Moses. Uh, Only the people of Israel could participate in that. Um, Deuteronomy 23 talked about... uh, Anyone whose genitals were mutilated could not be part of the congregation of the Lord. Uh, and then there's a, several foreigners, um, the Ammonites, the Moabites, could not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. Um, Egyptians and Edomites could enter in in the third generation. So it was a very exclusive idea, the idea of being a citizen of Israel in the promised land. Um, in, in the mind of the first century Judean, circumcision answered the question of who were the people of God. And they, of course, answered it, we are the people of God. And they were very proud of that exclusivity. Um, Paul over and over will tell us that he only preached the hope of Israel. His first letter that we probably have is uh, the letter to the Galatians. There are, uh, and this letter is written to address this same issue of whether these Gentiles being brought into the kingdom needed to be circumcised and whether they needed to follow the law of Moses. In Galatians 5, He tells, uh, in verse 3, he said, I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect to you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Now, this is interesting. Uh, We are going to see as we go through the book of Acts that all of the Judean Christians continued to follow the law even though they understood that their salvation, their citizenship in Israel, 
was no longer conditioned upon their physical circumcision or on their keeping Torah, they all continued to do it zealously, even Paul. And many of us have been told otherwise that Paul was urging all the Judeans to abandon the observation of the law. But we will see, particularly in the 21st chapter of Acts, that this is is not the case and could not be the case. He doesn't tell the Galatians not to do it. He's just saying that those who are circumcised are have an obligation to do the whole law. So a native Judean would have been circumcised and they would continue to do the law. But no Gentile should be circumcised because then they would be also obligated to follow the whole law. Circumcision was usually the last uh, stage of a Gentile proselyting to becoming a Judean. Uh, they would they would begin by observing the the obligations that were given to Noah after the flood, and we'll see that enters here into Acts 15. Um, and they would have certain dietary restrictions in order to participate in the synagogue. It, it was a it was a little touchy to have these God fearing Greeks meeting there in the synagogue regularly with the Judeans. Um, particularly if they wanted to eat together as a community because they had different dietary uh, restrictions. And we'll see that this this comes up from time to time. But they, these God-fearing Gentiles would begin by observing the, the laws given to Noah after the flood and certain dietary restrictions that the rulers of the synagogue placed upon the God-fearing Greeks. And then they would kind of move into uh, following more and more of the law. And then usually circumcision would be the last, final, and ultimate irreversible step in becoming a proselyte to Judaism. Uh, And so this had been going on at an accelerated pace for some time. And, again, the, those who believed in Christ didn't see any particular reason for that to change. So uh, there, there is some disputation here. Um, if we go to the sixth chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians, right towards the end of the letter, he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And we we learned about that in uh, the Gospel of John. Israel is being spiritually recreated at this time. And baptism is the point at which uh, it's a new birth. You, you, you relive the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You are raised out of the water into the new creation, into the body of Christ, the new tabernacle of Christ as a new creature. So the baptism is what was important. Circumcision physically no longer availed anything. So in his letter to the Galatians, Paul is directly confronting the ideas of the Pharisees in Jerusalem who were causing this trouble uh, there in verse 5. So uh, I'll take any questions and then we can 
go ahead and read uh, verses 6 through 11. Um, you don't hear emphasis on the Great Commission being fulfilled by the apostles in the 120. Um, as you've mentioned, I don't think anybody I've ever heard preach has ever really said it was fulfilled at that time. But I think that's something I'd like you to comment on a little bit, please. Well, I agree that I have, uh, I never heard that growing up either. But uh, Paul writes to Timothy at the end that he has finished his course. And he, he had to get the gospel out to every part of the world in which a, at least in which a synagogue existed. And so, I mean, he was zealous to do so. And he could tell Timothy that he has finished the race and, and fought the good fight and done all that. Uh, we also find in uh, Jude, in Jude 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write to you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write to you and encourage you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which has once and for all been delivered to the saints. Uh, and there are several other passages that talk about the, the delivery of the faith as being an accomplished fact in the days of the writers of the New Testament. But most of all, we'll just see it as we go through Acts, that, um, well, and we should have studied that when we were going through Acts 1 and 2, when Jesus predicted the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24 in particular, when he's giving the disciples the signs of the end, he's saying, first you must carry the gospel out to the far ends of the earth, and then the end will come. So there's... Uh, passages like that as well. So the the Great Commission was given to those disciples who were alive at that time, particularly to the twelve. They were specially chosen to carry it out. It was their commission. Um, not that ours is all that different today, but theirs theirs was a, um, a sobering amount of work to get done in one lifetime, and they took it seriously, and they got the job done. All right, let's go ahead then and read verses 6 through 11 if we... The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. All right, thank you. So here is the first of at least a couple of divinely inspired commentaries on this question. And 
Peter is hearkening back to his time with Cornelius and his household, the the Roman army officer, who was one of these uh, many God-fearing Gentiles in the Roman world at that time. And Peter is making a, a, a pointed note that the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and his household uh, without them being circumcised and made no difference at all between us and them, but purified their hearts by faith. Um, So the important thing is he made no difference between us and them. Peter at that time, remember, had seen that vision of the sheet with all of these unclean food items that was offered and then taken up, and then God told him, um, you know, eat what God has has cleansed. And Peter understood that to mean to accept in the Gentiles who are cleansed by the blood of Christ without circumcision as equals. See, he says he made no difference between us and them. And this is the hard part. This is, And this is what most modern scholars and most teachers in, in the world today miss, is that it wasn't that these Judean Christians weren't accepting of these foreigners. They all knew that in the last days these foreigners would be welcomed into Israel and that they all the nations would acknowledge the one God of Israel as the only true God. So they welcomed that. But they they had a real hard time giving up the exclusivity that they had enjoyed for 1,200 years or more uh, as God's chosen people. And this, this is actually the whole subject of Paul's letter to the Roman Gentile Christians. Um, and and it, Paul bemoans that the law, that he could not get over this jealousy, the, the covetousness of coveting that chosen place as God's chosen people uh, in that letter to the Romans. But that's not our point of study uh, right here at the moment. Um, So Peter concludes uh, his reminiscence by stating that the yoke of the law should not be placed on the neck of these new Gentile believers in Jesus Christ. All right, any, any thoughts here? I noticed he was saying that neither the Jews nor their ancestors were able to bear the yoke. Yeah, that, that, that's that, a good point. And, and I think we've mentioned this before, but Paul tells us that the law was a schoolmaster or a child trainer to bring us to Christ. And I believe that that is the exact point that Paul is trying to make that is overlooked, mm-hmm. is that any sincere student of the law understood that no one could bear the yoke of the law. The law itself could not save. It could not entitle someone to stand in God's presence. It could only exclude them from God's presence uh, in a thousand different ways (laughs) with a thousand different walls of separation. Uh, And so 
that that is an excellent point there, Leslie. That, that it was a it was, I believe, intentionally a difficult yoke that was to demonstrate, as a good child trainer would demonstrate to a pupil, that the law was insufficient to save, and that the only hope of Israel was a Messiah. And of course, they the Israelites themselves made it even more difficult with all the added rules and regulations that they fabricated outside of the Ten Commandments. Oh yeah, the Pharisees, uh, you know, in particular, had done all that to try to uh, to fight. Originally, it had good intentions to fight off the Greek culture that was infiltrating uh, Judea. Uh, but they, you know, they carried it on and on. Now there was a group that thought the Pharisees were were uh, soft, and that was the Essenes. They uh, they <laughs> denigrated the Pharisees as being way too soft and not adding enough to the law. And they, I mean, you know, they they had to live uh, celibate lives, and they had to take a cold shower every morning. And I mean, it's when you read some of this stuff that's come out of the Dead Sea Scrolls about the Essene community, you know, they added even way more than even the Pharisees did. But that's an excellent point. They had made it even worse than it was. Mark, this is Chuck. But did I understand you to say that Paul was saying that Israelite followers of Christ were still responsible for works of the law, whereas uh, Gentiles were not? Well, almost. Uh, what we're, we are going to see as we go through the book of Acts that contrary to what most people teach today, the Judean Christians did zealously follow the law of Moses. And Acts 21 is going to demonstrate this, I mean, in great detail. And either either Paul was a liar or a hypocrite or... When we get to Acts 21, we'll see that he did follow the law faithfully uh, as long as he lived, as far as we know. And they, they're not doing this to earn a place in God's presence. They have that through uh, Jesus Christ. But they are doing it to save as many out of Israel as they possibly can. They are trying to... They are bending over backwards to convert as many of their countrymen as they possibly can before it is everlastingly too late for them. So is this law that you're talking about the tradition of the elders that uh, Jesus spoke of, or or is it mm-hmm. the Ten Commandments and the law no. of Moses, or what is it? It's the law of Moses. And again, yeah, we'll have to wait till we get over to 21, which is coming up here. And uh, we'll have a good discussion on all that. All right. uh, Let's read down through 21, please. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people 
for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Great, thank you. Um, now, James, he wasn't the ruler of the church in Jerusalem, but he was uh, one of their elders and was extremely well-respected. Even amongst non-believing Judeans, uh, they referred to him as James the Just. Uh, so he had an excellent reputation, and it's believed that he was a younger brother, half-brother to Jesus. So he had the influence to uh, speak before the group and to uh, be heard by all who are assembled. So he refers to uh, Simon and the story of Cornelius. And then he claims that this fulfills the words of the prophets. And we're seeing that over and over in the book of Acts that the, the promises made through the prophets are being systematically fulfilled in detail. Now this particular prophecy that he is quoting is Amos chapter 9, I believe. Amos was an earlier prophet who wrote while the northern kingdom still existed. Um, shortly before they were utterly destroyed by the Assyrians, uh, Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Micah all were about that same period of time, roughly 730, 740 B.C. This is the same period of time covered by first, I mean, Second Chronicles and uh, Second Kings as well. It's when Assyria came in and... Uh, uh, conquered an alliance that uh, Syria had made with Israel, the northern kingdom, crushed them, and then carried off all their citizens and scattered them to the far eastern and northern edges of their empire, which would be modern-day India and Pakistan and uh, up into some of the Istans that were part of the Soviet Union and so on. Uh, so Amos... Uh, that's the context in which the book of Amos is being written. The northern kingdom was utterly and totally uh, corrupt. They had split off in the days of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and had gone off and made Jeroboam, an enemy of Solomon, uh, their king. And Jeroboam set up uh, altars and 
golden calves to worship in the northern and at Dan and then down in the southern part of the kingdom so that they wouldn't be tempted to go up to Jerusalem to worship. So they never really recovered from this uh, uh, this foul idolatry. Uh, God considered it a spiritual adultery. Um, let's see, Amos, if we stop off at the fifth chapter, this is a lamentation being made against the house of Israel. He says, The virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is, she is forsaken upon her land. There is no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out by a thousand shall leave a hundred, and that which went forth by a hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. The Lord of the house of Israel says, Seek me and you shall live, but, if you, but don't seek Bethel or enter into Gilgal or pass to Beersheba. Uh, we don't need to read all that. But he says, Seek the Lord and you shall live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, and there be none to quench it in Bethel. You who turn judgment to wormwood and leave off righteousness in the land. Now the, the, the northern kingdom were predominantly made up of the descendants of Joseph. And what kind of a character was Joseph? Uh, if, if you compare the character of all Bible people how does joseph uh, rank would you would you say righteous yeah he was very righteous and wise uh, how does he compare to his older brother judah in that department <laughs> jealousy and uh in conniving yeah there, there's no comparison and yet messiah came through the line of judah not of joseph and and joseph's descendants are known as Ephraim and Manasseh, they become the largest tribes uh, in all of Israel, and the entire northern kingdom is called Ephraim, because Ephraim is such is by far the dominant tribe. So this northern kingdom is made up for the most part of descendants of Joseph. Now, the Amos 5 tells them that this that they're never going to be a nation again. They will fall never to rise again. But there are promises that God is not utterly done with Joseph. There in verse 15, um, it may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And then if we skip ahead to... Uh, Amos 9, which is being quoted here in Acts 15. Again, this is a horrible judgment being pronounced on the northern kingdom for their spiritual adultery, their idolatry. He says, even if they hide themselves at the top of Mount Carmel, I will search them out and take them out. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, I will command the serpent and he will bite them. In other words, they're not going to be able to get away from them. They're going to be they're going to be utterly destroyed. Uh, he compares it to like the flood of Egypt where the Egyptian army was swept away by the Red Sea. Uh, picking up in verse 7, Are you not as children of the Ethiopians to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? 
Have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Captor, and the Syrians from Ker? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. For, lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like corn is sifted in a sieve, and yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Those who say the evil shall not overtake us. In that day, and here's what James is quoting, in that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the breaches of it. I will raise up his ruins and I will build it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does this? And skipping to 14, I will bring again or back the captivity of my people Israel. They shall build the way cities. They shall inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards. They shall drink the wine from it. They will also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them in their land, and they will no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. So you, you can see if you were a dispensationalist or a Christian Zionist, that you would think how important the land was over there in Palestine today and how important it would be for Israel to be dwelling in that land because the Gentiles can only participate at the same time that God will call back the captivity of Israel. So, you know, they do have some Bible uh, behind what they are saying, and uh, interestingly enough, non-dispensationalists have a hard time debating them on this because they can go to these prophecies and they can demonstrate that these promises are not made to an entity called the church. All of these promises are made to Israel. And it's a true fact. And uh, the church is not even a proper name. Church is just a horrible translation of the Greek word ekklesia, which means assembly. And that's the same word that God talked about Israel in the uh, Old Testament. He called them the ekklesia, or assembly. Uh, that's how the, the Septuagint translates it, the assembly of Israel, as ekklesia, the same word. So we, we've kind of become our own worst enemy by uh, developing concepts that are not in the Bible. And the dispensationalists can claim high ground uh, on some of these things. But uh, we're out of time tonight. But the next time we get together, I want to demonstrate uh, what the solution to this uh, dilemma is and the true meaning of this promise to raise up the tabernacle of David at the same time that the nations are being included into Israel. That's the key point James is making. Since the Gentiles are coming into Israel in, in these huge numbers, it, it, it proves that the tabernacle of David is being rebuilt. And so next time we want to examine exactly what he's talking about, what is the tabernacle of David. And if you want to uh, 
study that, you can go back to First uh, Chronicles 15 and 16 and Second uh, Samuel chapter 6. All right, uh, I'm going to stop there. I'll entertain any last thoughts or questions or comments. Any questions, comments? Uh, yes. <laughs> okay, Leslie? I, I made a footnote from another book that I read that I think it was Jeroboam that made the abomination. He realized that if they went to Jerusalem to worship God, he would lose his whole authority as a king uh, from where he was. So he siphoned them off by making them worship calves and, and stuff closer to home rather than worship the God of Israel. Yeah, that that's was, a... That was yes. a, it's a big political ploy to get them away from Jerusalem and, and, and they used the believers and polluted their thoughts like you were saying and, and the Bible was saying. But I see a parallel of what's happening there to what's happening now with, with um, the Zionism using uh, believers and then polluting their beliefs and keeping them from worshiping the true God. Uh, yeah, That's I think we could, make, uh, we could make a lot of parallels between the, the Pharisees of the first century and the uh, new Pharisees today. Uh, that's an excellent summary of Jeroboam, and, and that also can be tied right into our study. When the northern kingdom was separated from the house of David and God intervened and said he intervened and forced that to happen after Solomon's death, you see, there was no... They couldn't, they could not live to God without being under the house of David. And that was the beginning of their end and their dispersion to the four corners of the earth is when they were separated from the sure mercies of David. And so that ties right in to this last day's promise for the tabernacle of David to be rebuilt which is at the heart here of Acts 15. Okay, well, great. That was uh, excellent, Mark, and the comments were very good tonight, and we'll look forward to continuing on. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast, and please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.